this episode of 92i Talks, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, one of the most admired religious leaders of our time, delivers a major address on how we can understand and confront religious violence. In conversation with journalist Eliza Griswold, Sachs explores the concept of what he calls altruistic evil and guides us through an understanding of the past that will contribute to a more peaceful future. The event was recorded in front of a live audience on November 8th, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y. My subject is uh, tonight is religion and violence. Difficult subject. Therefore, let me just begin on a light note with a story I like because it really touches me. Uh, the story of the English philosophy professor invited to deliver a lecture on metaphysics and epistemology at the University of Beijing, not being fluent in Mandarin, uh, the university arranged for a translator. He uh, entered the hall, a thousand students, very reverentially awaiting his words. He began his lecture and after two sentences, paused for the interpreter to translate it into Mandarin. But the translator waved him on and said, I'll tell you when to stop. This went on for 15 minutes. The translator told him to pause, said four words in Mandarin, and waved him on. The same thing happened after the 30 minutes, four words, and 45 minutes. And at the end of the lecture, after an hour, the interpreter turned to the audience, said three words in Mandarin, and everyone reverentially stood up and filed out. The professor was intrigued by this. He went over to the translator and said, I have just delivered an extremely technical, complex lecture. How were you able to condense it to so few words? The translator said, easy. After 15 minutes, I said, so far, he hasn't said anything new. <laughs> After half an hour, I said, he still hasn't said anything new. After 45 minutes, I said, I don't think he's going to say anything new. And after an hour, I w said I was right. He didn't. So I'm not sure if I have anything new to say on a subject as ancient as this. But a subject as ancient as this deserves that something be said. Because the reason I wrote not in God's name was because of two very ancient phenomena indeed that have resurfaced in our time. Number one, which touches me as a Jew, is the return of anti-Semitism. Let me say very clearly that the return of anti-Semitism as a global force, as one that is infecting Europe today, and asking Jews, is there a future for Jews in Europe today, is an absolute scandal. That it should have returned within living memory of the Holocaust is unbelievable. And it has returned, despite the fact that the greatest effort in all of Western history to create an immune system that would make it never possible again. After all those defenses, it has still returned. After 50 years of Holocaust education, 50 years of anti-racist legislation, 50 years of interfaith dialogue, it has returned. And we have to stand up and protest this. But secondly, we have now seen, on a much more global scale, the return of wars of religion. The kind of thing that we felt would never happen again. What has, in fact, happened is that the 21st century is a kind of replay in many respects, of what happened in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries following the Reformation. Similar factors have been at work. Number one, a sense of widespread dismay at the perceived corruption of the ruling power. Today, many secular nationalist regimes in the Middle East, including Syria and Iraq, then the Roman Catholic Church, Number two, that political protest taking a religious form. Number three, the religious form taking the shape of a desire to return to the way the religion was at the very beginning, when it was still pure, 
And number four, most important of all, a revolution in information technology that has allowed groups that otherwise would have been entirely marginal to outflank all established powers. Today, that revolution is the internet, YouTube, Facebook, social networking technology. In the 16th century, it was, of course, the invention of printing. Everything that Luther said had basically been said two centuries earlier by John Wycliffe in Oxford, but Wycliffe lived before the invention of printing, so his reformation remained marginal, whereas Luther's coming as it did after the invention of printing was able to flood Europe with hundreds of thousands of his pamphlets, thus outflanking the communication through the pulpit and the priest. That is, of course, what ISIS and Al-Qaeda have done. They are the world's, among the world's most sophisticated users of Facebook and YouTube videos. And putting all those together, we have the same ingredients as scarred the face of Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries until the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. In other words, what happened then in Europe was a century of religious wars, culminating in the Thirty Years' War, in which as many as one-third of the population of Central Europe died. And that could be what is facing the world in the Middle East for a generation or two generations to come. Since both of these phenomena involve violence in the name of religion, it seemed to me that somebody had to get up and make a religious protest. Not a cliche one, because we all want peace and we all want us to live together in harmony, but one that was honest about the fact that religion can sometimes be the cause of violence. And if religion is part of the problem, it had better be part of the solution. So, although it's very difficult for me to summarize this quite elaborate book very briefly, let me at least take you into the heart of one of the key arguments of the book. The two people who, to my mind, said most interesting things about religion and violence in the 21st century, in the 20th century were Sigmund Freud, he wrote three books about it, Totem and Taboo, The Future of an Illusion, and his last book, the book he was just managed to complete as an exile in London, having seen his Viennese world go up in flames, Moses and Monotheism. And a disciple of Freud, a Frenchman who taught here in America called René Girard, who wrote probably the most famous book on this subject, Violence and the Sacred, published in 1976. What made Freud and Girard unusual is that they reversed the normal causality. Many people think religion leads to violence. They held that violence leads to religion. It was a very paradoxical insight, but a very powerful one. Freud, as you know, held that the fundamental driver of violence was the Oedipus complex, the conflict between sons and fathers. According to Freud, in both Totem and Taboo and Moses and Monotheism, the children of the tribe ganged up against the alpha male, killed the father figure who was dominating the females, and then were haunted by a sense of guilt, what he called the return of the repressed. And that repressed voice of the murdered father became the voice of God. That is Freud's theory. Girard, however, said something much more plausible, which is that if you look at ancient myth, the real conflicts that myth tells us about are not between fathers and sons, but between siblings. In Egyptian myth, Set and Osiris, in Greek myth, Atreus and Theestes, in Roman founding mythology, Romulus and Remus, one brother kills the other and founds a city. Hamlet begins with Claudius, Hamlet's uncle, killing his brother Hamlet's father and taking his throne. 
And of course, the world's great treasury of sibling rivalry stories, the book of Genesis, which tells the story of five sibling rivalries, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, and the two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Now, one fascinating discovery I made in the course of this book is that Freud knew this as well. Because, as I document in the book, whenever Freud talks about sibling rivalry, his writing becomes almost incandescent. He felt passionate that sibling rivalry was a driver of human violence. Why then did he not make it the center of his system? Why did he leave it to Alfred Adler to do so? It seems, according to Freud's biographers, Freud needed a bit of psychoanalysis. <laughs> you see, Freud was the only boy in a family of daughters, and he was spoiled something rotten, he, which he thoroughly enjoyed. And then, without consulting him, his mother had another son. And young Sigmund was much miffed and did not approve at all. Not at all. He did not like the arrival of little brother Julius and thought terrible thoughts about him. Julius died before his first birthday. And it seems as if Freud felt guilty irrationally his whole life that maybe somehow his thinking these bad thoughts about his brother had actually led to his death one way or another. It is absolutely fascinating that Freud ultimately, like Girard, saw sibling rivalry as one of the great drivers of violence. We want what someone else has. Which means ultimately we want to be what someone else is. And the fascinating thing, of course, is that that is exactly what the Hebrew Bible says. The Hebrew Bible begins by saying, yes, there is a connection between religion and violence. The very first recorded religious act in the Bible leads to the first murder. What was the first religious act? Cain and Abel offer offerings to God. As a result of which, Cain kills Abel. The Bible is telling us right at the outside, yes, religion, if we are not careful, can lead to violence, and it leads to violence through sibling rivalry. But what fascinated me is when I tried to understand the violent relationship between the three Abrahamic monotheisms throughout history. Why is it that Jews, Christians, and Muslims have been very often so violent toward one another? And it was then that I made the fundamental discovery, which doubtless should have been made a long time ago. But perhaps the circumstances never forced people to see it. And that is this. We as Jews see ourselves as descended from Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and Jacob's children. However, what is fascinating is does anyone know which were the first Christian texts? The first Christian texts were the letters of Paul, written sometime between the years 40 and 60. That is to say, 10 years before the earliest of the Gospels. And Paul, of course, was engaged in a major act of defining a new religion called the Gentile church. Paul, James, Jesus' brother James, was head of something called the Jerusalem church, which was a group of Jews who were Messianic Jews, who kept all the mitzvot, all the commandments, whereas Paul went out to the Gentiles, who had many of whom had expressed considerable interest in Judaism, and Paul went out and founded the Gentile church. In one of his earliest letters, Galatians, 
he is expressing his disgust that the Galatians don't realize that as Gentile Christians, they do not have to keep the commandments, that is Paul's point, and they do not need circumcision. And Paul is trying to explain this to them. And he's saying, Abraham had two children, one by a slave woman called Hagar, and the other by a free woman called Sarah. We Christians are free. We are the children of Sarah. Whereas the Jews who are slaves to the law are the children of Hagar. We Christians are Isaac, Jews are Ishmael. Almost 20 years later, in a much later letter, the epistle to the Romans, Paul says something, we're actually going to read it in the synagogue next week, this coming Shabbat. He said, you know, two children, one chosen, one unchosen, can have the same parents. Isaac and Rebekah had two children, Jacob and Esau. And you remember what God said to Rebekah, Verav Yavod the elder will serve the younger. Now, who was the elder, Jews or Christians? Jews have been there a long time, right? We are the younger. So we Christians are Jacob. And the Jews are Esau. It was left to the third century church father, Cyprian, to say that we Christians see clearly. We are Rachel. Whereas the Jews have weak eyes, they don't see clearly, they are Leah. And if you look at many medieval cathedrals, you will see over the, great, over the front door, two women, one very beautiful one, the other with a veil over her eyes. That's the church and the Jews. The church is Rachel, the Jews are Leah. And it was left for the fourth century church fathers like Tertullian and John Chrysostom to draw the ultimate Analogy. Can you guess what it is? Jews killed the Messiah, their brother. So we are Abel and the Jews are Cain. In other words, sibling rivalry is written into the most primal story the Christians tell themselves about who we are. And of course, along comes Islam six centuries later and does exactly the same thing to both Jews and Christians at one stroke by saying, actually, the covenant didn't pass from Abraham to Isaac. It passed from Abraham to Ishmael. And why does the Hebrew Bible say it went through Isaac? Because Jews falsified the Bible. In other words, understand this. Freud and Girard tell us that if you trace the history of violence, you will find, lying beneath it all, almost always, sibling rivalry. Now you have three monotheisms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all of which define themselves in relation to the others as a sibling rivalry. Does it surprise us that the relations between them are violent? Let us be very blunt. We now know, Girard and Freud did not have this evidence in front of them, but they could probably guess, that sibling rivalry exists in the animal kingdom as well as in human society. Have you come across the phrase pecking order? Do you have a pecking order in America, or is it only we class-bound Brits who have this kind of thing? <laughs> you have this thing. Now, do you know how the phrase arises? Because when a brood of chicks is born, the first that is born is a little bigger and stronger than the others because it's been there a bit longer. So it insists on having first go at the food. And if any of its siblings attempt to get in its way, that firstborn will be violent towards the others. Because it's a matter of life and death. If you don't have enough food, you will not survive the rigors of the winter. So siblings have to fight it out. 
And if I am not the firstborn, then that firstborn is standing between me and what I need to live. That is the essence of sibling rivalry. That you, my elder brother, are standing in my way between me and the thing I most want. And therefore, I can only get what I most want by getting you out of the way, in extremis, by murdering you. That is the story of Romulus and Remus. That is the story of Claudius and Hamlet and so on. That is the story. I have to murder you to get you out of the way so I can get the food. And the firstborn knows this and will preemptively attack you if it thinks you are about to attack it. What happens at a less violent level among human kids? They're not competing for food supply. What are they competing for? Parental attention, right? You know, if mom is looking after him, she's not looking after me. And that is why sibling rivalry is so endemic among siblings. Do you remember when you were young, I don't, you know, when you, when you had a new toy? All of a sudden, your siblings wanted that toy. They never wanted it before. But because you have it, they want it. So this goes as deep as it gets. But now I want you to understand what a strange concept this is. Because sibling rivalry is predicated on the logic of scarcity. And it makes sense to say that for animals, food supply is limited. For humans, attention span is limited. But does it make any sense whatsoever to say of God, his love is a scarce commodity, such that to love me, he has to not like you. Or to choose me, he has to reject you. It makes no sense sense at all. And once we see this, something quite extraordinary emerges, which I try to analyze in my book. I go through every story of sibling rivalry in Genesis and show you that the way we've always read it until now is not the way we should read it in the 21st century. Let me give you an example. Do you remember Genesis 21? Isaac is born. We just read it a couple of weeks ago in the synagogue. We read it day one of the Jewish year. It's the reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Isaac is born. He grows up. Sarah's happy. Then you remember, Sarah sees Ishmael, Mitzachek, whatever that means, mocking. And she says to Abraham, send that slave woman and her son away. Do you remember? Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. They're sent away into the desert. Their water supply runs out. They are there in the heat of the day. Ishmael is dehydrated. He's about to die. Hagar can't bear to look. She hides him under a bush and sits a long way away so she won't actually see him die. And then, of course, an angel appears and rescues him. Tell me, who are your sympathies with when you read that story? Your sympathies are with Hagar and Ishmael. They cannot be otherwise. Let me give you another example. We're going to read it in the synagogue this coming Shabbat. You remember Genesis 27? Isaac is old. He's blind. He wants to bless his son Esau. He says, go and get me some food. Rebecca overhears this, says to Jacob, I'm going to make the food. You take it into your father. Pretend to be Esau. Jacob says, maybe he'll feel me. Okay, wear Esau's skins. And Jacob takes the blessing by deceit and leaves the room, and in comes Esau, and Isaac and Esau between them suddenly realize the deception that has been played on them. And Isaac trembles, a terrible trembling, and Esau lets out a loud and bitter cry. Who are your sympathies with? Your sympathies must be with Esau. You cannot read the story otherwise. In other words... We always read these stories as simple stories. Isaac is chosen, not Ishmael. Jacob is chosen, not Esau. But when we actually look at the narrative form of those stories, the Bible is doing something very subtle. It's saying, forget how you read those stories when you were a kid. Now read them as a mature adult and realize 
that you have to empathize with Esau as well as with Jacob, with Ishmael as well as with Isaac. You have to enter in to the mind of the other and see the other as equally human because God's love is not in short supply the way a human's is and therefore to love me he doesn't have to hate you and to choose me he doesn't have to reject you. If that is the case, then we have the possibility of a theology for the 21st century that might just be an idea that plays some part in mitigating the historic tension, indeed animosity, that existed between Jews, Christians, and Muslims and led to crusades, pogroms, and is currently leading to devastation in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Asia. Why do I say all this? Quite simply, because to put it very bluntly, if we as Jews are only concerned with anti-Semitism, we are not going to win this battle. There are not very many of us. There are 2.4 billion Christians. There are 1.6 billion Muslims. There are 13 million of us, most of whom seem to be in this room this evening. For every Jew, there are 123 Muslims and 185 Christians. And unless we are going to stand together, we will fall separately. Jews will have to fight anti-Semitism alone. And the end result was tragic. Today, we mustn't do this anymore. We have to say clearly and categorically to our fellow Abrahamic monotheists, to our Christian and Muslim brothers and sisters. Friends, we have been enemies for the wrong reason. Because whether I am Jacob or I am Esau, and whether you are Cain or whether, whether you are Isaac or Ishmael, God loves us both, blesses us both, wants us both. Yes, we're different. But God created and celebrates difference. Why do I say this is possible today? For one simple salient reason. Because right now, it's not only Jews who are suffering. To put it very bluntly, Christians are being massacred throughout the Middle East. Fifteen years ago, there were 1.5 million Christians in Iraq. Today, 400,000 and falling rapidly. Mosul, the second city of Iraq, one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. As you know, just a year ago, all the Christians were terrorized, intimidated, butchered, beheaded, and crucified. There are no Christians left in Mosul. The last church, church in Afghanistan burned to the ground in 2010. The last Christian bookseller in Gaza, told by Hamas in 2007, close your bookstore. Being a committed Christian, he didn't. So first they burnt it to the ground and then they slit his throat and no more Christian books in Gaza. A hundred years ago, Christians were 20% of the Middle East today, 4% and falling. This is the religious equivalent of ethnic cleansing. Secondly, the primary victims of Islamist violence are quite frankly Muslims. It is Muslims who are dying in Syria and Iraq and other places where the radicals are wreaking havoc. Right now, ISIS is quite calculatingly working out how, when they achieve power and the caliphate they desire, they will eliminate 200 million Shia. And right now, of course, that is why Iran is developing its capacity to be a major power in the Middle East. And who feels most threatened by this? You think Israel is the only one who feels threatened by this? Egypt and Saudi Arabia feel every bit as much threatened as Israel does. In fact, as you probably know, Saudi Arabia have already approached the Israelis saying, please, can we have Iron Dome, thus proving that God has a sense of humor. We'll all stand under the chuppah together and it'll be fine. <laughs> so since Jews are threatened, Christians are threatened, and Muslims are threatened, maybe now we can finally stand together and say that God does not want us 
to kill in the name of the God of life, to hate in the name of the God of love, to wage war in the name of the God of peace, and to practice cruelty in the name of compassion. The time has come for the children of Abraham, worshippers of one God, to stand together as one family in defense of the sanctity of life and the blessedness of peace, because if not now, then when? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. First, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for writing this remarkable book and the 24 that preceded it. <laughs> this book is as eloquent and compelling as it is deeply radical. And it is radical in that from a religious point of view, from a deeply religious point of view, it asks us to be honest with ourselves about the role that religion plays in violence. So to begin with, I'd just like to ask you, why do you think we are so afraid to talk about the relationship between religion or religious identity and violence today? <clears throat> Could I put it the other way around? Please. I'm not afraid. <laughs> because, you know, in Judaism, we're used to arguing with God and having him arguing with us. In fact, Jews, full stop, they just argue. <laughs> Judaism is the only civilization I know, all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of argument. <laughs> you know, the Talmud is rabbis arguing with one another, the Midrash is, the Bible, people arguing with God. In fact, I think God only chose the Jewish people because he loves a good argument. <laughs> so um, because of that, I kind of hear God saying, okay, you know, there's good news about humanity and bad news. Number one, there are times when you love me very much indeed or worship me very passionately indeed. That's the good news. The bad news is you allow your love for me to vindicate your hatred for the people that I created in my own image. And we have a very powerful story of that in the Bible. You know, Jonah is sent to prophesy and thus to rescue, to warn the people of Nineveh, that is the military headquarters of Israel's enemy, the Assyrians. And Jonah doesn't want to go. I mean, would you want to go to bring a lifeline to your enemies? Mm. And in the end, of course, he goes and they repent and God forgives them. And Jonah wants to die. And God says, do you think those are not my children? So I think, you know, just as a Jew, I just find it very easy to be honest with ourselves because God is very honest with us, and I kind of hear that voice in my ear. Mm -hmm. I wanted to thank you about your, your thoughtful comments about Christianity in the Middle East, having been in the region somewhat recently looking in the short term you know, looking what ISIS is doing now against all religious minorities, Christians, mm -hmm. Yazidis, certainly the Turkmen Shia, with a pattern of violence that began, let's be clear, with the U.S. invasion in 2003. Um, and being in Nineveh, being in Nineveh, being in places, in churches, which are devastated as they have been many times over history, and where for the first time in 2,000 years there are no services and thinking it is impossible to be within that space and not think of the Jews and not think who, who has been here before, yeah. who has been driven from this space. And, and it works the other way around. I mean, there's a group of Jews in Britain, probably the best known of them is Lord Weidenfeld, um, Weidenfeld and Nicholson's, the publishers, who have led the rescue effort of Christians from Syria. Mm. And Weidenfeld, who survived the Second World War and as a refugee, was quite explicit. Christians saved Jewish lives in the Holocaust. 
So we Jews, when we're in a position to save Christian lives from Syria, must do so. And I just think that is how it goes. You know, that there are certain acts of courage and rescue that resonate. What, what do they call it? There was a film called Pay It Forward, you mm. know? That the good deeds that people did in the past encourage us to do likewise in the present. And I'm really, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to say, look, if it helps you as a Christian or you as a Muslim to see how I as a Jew wrestle with my own heritage and try and reread my own texts, then I think actually good can be contagious, just as bad can be. Absolutely. I mean, the challenge that we have most pressingly today in the United States vis-a-vis -vis courage and re rescue is to try to accommodate, you know, of the 4.3 million Syrians displaced now, the United States has taken less than 2,000. And, and I don't know how there is such profound fear in our communities of the other, of what is the cultural imposition going to be? What are we going to be expected to condone on the subways, in high rises, in projects? And the language, as we talked about for a moment, is just, I mean, close your eyes, it is the Protestant perspective on the Irish Catholics coming 100 years ago. Uh, the language is exactly the same. But you said something backstage that I just thought was so, is so essential. If we do not develop a theory of the other, an understanding of the other for the 21st century, then religion will have failed. Absolutely. I believe <clears throat> that Abrahamic monotheism says this. God is absolutely other, totally different from us. So our respect for the divine other must allow us to respect the human other. I don't know if you <clears throat> ever worked this out, because it, it's more obvious in Hebrew than it is in English, but do you know what Adam calls his wife? Honey? Close. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, it, it, I suggest all sorts of things for Jews, apples and honeys. And things, but <laughs> the truth is he called her woman. Mm. He said, now I have found bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken from that. She's a kind of, uh, you know, assistant, an extension of me. He doesn't give her a name. He doesn't recognize her as a person. End result, you know what happens, and they are just about to get thrown out of Eden, and he turns to her, and he suddenly realizes, I never recognized you as something different from me. But you really are. Because without you, I can't have children, and God is just gonna, has just told me I'm going to die. I never worried about it because I thought I was going to be immortal, but now I suddenly realized I need a child, and that you can do, and I can't. And he calls her Chava, Eve. Ki hi haita em kol chai because she was the mother of all living. And at that point, the Bible says God clothed them with garments of skin. And one of our rabbis translating the same word, or, with an iron for or with an olive, he clothed them with garments of light. And I don't know if you notice, the Bible scholars call this the J word and the E word. Mm. You don't actually have the J word until that point. Mm. In other words, until... Adam recognizes his wife as a person. He doesn't even recognize God as a person because the J name is God as a person, mm. right? So basically, God is saying already in Genesis 1, when he says, let us create man in our image according to our likeness, that the real challenge is, can I see in somebody who's not in my image, whose color or class, or culture, or language, or faith is different from mine. Can I see in someone who's not in my image, God's image? Can I see the face of God in the face of a stranger? That is the monotheistic challenge. And therefore, when we hate and fear 
and sometimes practice violence against the stranger. There is no ultimate betrayal, more ultimate betrayal of monotheism. Mm. Now, I doubt too many people said that before the 21st century because we didn't need to. Mm. But today, walking along the streets of New York, or London for that matter, you will encounter more diversity than an 18th century globe-trotting anthropologist would have come across in a lifetime. So unless we can learn to live with difference, and what I call the dignity of difference, we are going to fail the challenges of the 21st century. So in my tiny experience of this, this is a practice, as much as it is an internal act of listening deeply to what God intends. There is the way it works outside in, which is having this practice with the other that then informs mm. the in interiority. So this is a book of great tradition, of great theory, of great exegetical import for the 21st century. Where do you see, and I know that as a very practical man, you have lived interfaith dialogue, where it's effective, where it's not effective, over decades. So if we were to say practically, if we were having a foreign policy discussion right now, I'd say, what are the policy implications for this book, right? So what can we do practically to deepen our experience, our knowledge, and our love of the other? I'll tell you. <clears throat> I distinguish between two kinds of interfaith activity. Okay. <laughs> I call them face-to-face -face and side-by-side. Face-to-face is interfaith dialogue. It's beautiful. It's elevating. It's pure. It's lovely. And it doesn't work. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because uh. you sit up at the top of a Swiss mountain and think beautiful thoughts to one another. Mm -hmm. The second you get down to the streets of Mumbai or Beirut or Aleppo, all of that disappears. So I am an advocate of what I call side-by-side, side, which is that we, without any interfaith dialogue whatsoever, we recognize that here's a problem that affects all of us, and therefore let's work together. And that I see, for instance, in the north of Israel, where you've got Christians and Muslims and Jews and Druze, and how do they do their interfaith? Through the hospital. <laughs> yeah? They work together in the hospital because they see everyone needs medicine. There are a lot of people, and they go out and they do it. And the end result is standing side by side to uh, affect poverty or to bring medical aid or to bring some kind of relief to traumatize refugee children. You do that side by side, you build up friendships which have immense power, which don't depend whatsoever on elevated theological dialogue, but they bond us together. So the policy implications are, I've given you the theory, now let's stand side by side and work with the refugees, and work with the injured and the traumatized. And let's do that Jew, Christian, and Muslim together. Absolutely. I, I, the most effective, yeah. In, in my experience of it, the most effective interfaith work, or some of it that I've ever seen, is between two figures. I'm sure you've met a pastor and an imam who live in northern Nigeria. The pastor has one arm because the imam's boys lopped the other off about 20 years ago. And they bring Christian and Muslim women together to buy um, stoves that use not very much firewood. Because one of the things Christians and Muslims fight over in northern Nigeria, thanks to desert, desertification, thanks to climate change, is firewood. Mm. And so creating bonds that have nothing to do, it's let's collect the garbage together, let's work out the firewood situation. Bonds of human connection, I, I think that's just essential and so often missed. Mm. So, okay. You have also <clears throat> said that the 21st century needs a battle of ideas much, much like the one that informed the 17th century. Could you, could you tease that out for the audience a little bit? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> wars are won by weapons, but peace is won by ideas. 
in the end, the great wars of religion came to an end because I think everyone was fed up with them, actually. Mm. The Dictionary of National Biography says about one of my predecessors, the late Chief Rabbi Hertz, that he never despaired of a peaceful solution to any problem once every other alternative had been exhausted. <laughs> so at the end of the day, sheer exhaustion caused the combatants to come together and create the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. But what really won the peace was a series of thinkers of whom my favorites are John Milton, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and our very own Apicarus, our own heretic Spinoza in Amsterdam in the 17th century. Some of them religious, some of them very anti-religious, but all four studying the same text, the Hebrew Bible, which Hobbes, an atheist, quotes 647 times in the Leviathan. Mm. And out of the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> They came up with the five ideas that frame not only the 17th century, but the entire history of the modern world from then till today. Social contract, the moral limits of power, liberty of conscience, the doctrine of toleration, and most famously, human rights. Mm. All of those ideas born in the 17th century from those thinkers reflecting on religious texts in a world that had been scarred by religious wars. I would say if all th everything were in our favor, those five ideas would do in the 21st century. But they're not quite enough for one obvious reason. The 17th century solved the problem by depriving religion of power. Mm. Today, religion is seizing power. That's what ISIS, Al-Qaeda, et al, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Al-Nusra, Islamic Jihad, and so on are doing. They are seizing power from the secular nationalist regimes they are engaged in a religious counter-revolution. And therefore, we have no alternative but to go back to the texts themselves, which are actually full of the most murderous implications unless properly interpreted once you give religious leaders power. And today they have seized it. And therefore, I've tried to fire the first shot in a battle of ideas that will work even if religion does have power. Mm -hmm. No, it's, this is certainly, you we're talking about that when we look within the, the Christian context and within, Islamic, within an Islamic context for the past several decades, and we look at this idea of rebirth, this mm -hmm. religious resurgence rebirth. Part of it in, in both contexts is this belief that in the literal word of the text, because if I can access that text, I know what God said word for word. I don't need some intermediary. I don't need a priest. I don't need anyone. I don't need an imam to tell me what I cannot do. And that tends to confirm the most violent principles within these books themselves. Now, you've mentioned engaging in an honest conversation about what these texts actually say. What would that conversation look like? It would look like Christians and Muslims reminding themselves that they have a tradition of textual interpretation as rich as Jews do. Mm. Um, Jews never read the Bible without commentaries. Mm. <laughs> And we never read it without disagreeing with the commentaries as well, at least uh, without disagreeing with the rabbi's sermon at any rate. So, uh, so we argue over we the text. We do that too. You do that too. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, I mean, the truth is uh, Christians have exactly the same history of exegesis. Islam had its classic four schools of Islamic jurisprudence. And every Christian and Muslim scholar knows, as does every rabbi, that Fundamentalism is the attempt to move from text to application without interpretation, mm. and it's disastrous. And therefore, what we're trying to do is to reclaim very ancient traditions that are being ignored by the people of violence, whose understanding of Islam is very superficial indeed. In fact, one of them was found with a copy of Islam for Dummies. So, you know, <laughs> this is not exactly the world's wisest sages. And, and the fascinating thing is this that I have written a book which is, 
I hope, a bit challenging. But I wanted to reach out beyond my own faith community. And the fascinating thing is that the readers who have most enjoyed this book have been Christians and Muslims. And that seems to me to tell me that there is a hunger out there for reminding us that the way of violence is not the way of God, and that echoes through all three monotheisms. Mm. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't turn to these cards and, and involve the audience, so we have just time for a couple more questions. Go for it. We'll, we'll stick on this practical aspect here. So how do Christians, Jews, and Muslims have a louder voice in promoting a positive view of religion? Is that a social conversation, a political conversation, or an ecumenical conversation? Uh, I would like to see it function in what is diplomatically known as track two diplomacy. In other words, <laughs> empower religious leaders to think through principles, to apply in conflict zones, uh, using the principle that I clearly um, emphasize in the last chapter of the book, reciprocity. Mm. If I want respect from you, then I have to give respect as well as claim it. If I want you to tolerate me, I have to tolerate you. These basic principles are the principles that emerge when religions don't know who's going to win. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and given the sort of shifting nature of the political landscape, I think we're in that situation right now. Mm -hmm. And we can come through with some principles that might be uh, adopted by the United Nations to go along with the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Article 18 is a guarantee of religious freedom, which is clearly being flouted in 103 of the 192 countries that make up the United Nations. So I'd like to see us make that passionate, make the same kind of commitment that the UN did for its Millennium Development Goals 15 mm -hmm. years ago. I want to see us involved in the UN. I want us to see us involved in track two diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I want us to be able to mobilize a group of clerics of the three faiths when there are issues like the ones affecting the Temple Mount that led to violence sure. just recently. That's when you bring people in to soothe a potential conflict that can suddenly flare out of control. I think that we were speaking for a minute about the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and the role that one, this is my two cents. <laughs> I, my understanding is that the, for many believers of different stripes in much of the developing world, the, the role and relevance of leaders who are not in those conflict zones cannot be underestimated. So the idea that the Archbishop of Canterbury might show up in southern Sudan as a religious leader on the ground there is openly calling for violence in the name of Christianity, which does happen quite often. Mm. This engagement, this global engagement, I, I think it, for a long time it has seemed maybe irrelevant or maybe even paternalistic, and it isn't. It's Exactly what you're saying. There are more relationships to be formed here uh, that are essential. And mm. I'm excited to see the next chapter of Track 2, Diplomacy. You guys getting off little planes. And I think it'll be very good. Well, you know, I, I, I think we get down to street level. I think we've got to come down the mountain top. Yes. You know. And I mean, I mean, just at the simple human level, uh, Rome Williams, who was then Archbishop of Canterbury, and I took for the 70th anniversary of Kristallnacht, mm. leaders of all the faiths in Britain, a whole leadership team of each faith, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Zoroastrian, and Baha'i, we took them, we went with them to Auschwitz. Mm. And then, having spent the day there, one of the most searing days any of us could experience, we just sat in the airport in Krakow, and we just spoke from the heart about our fears. And it was one of the most extraordinary moments I've ever come across because it's absolutely clear that it was not just Jews who feel threatened by anti-Semitism and so on. I mean, the Hindus feel terribly threatened by a nuclear Pakistan and a rampant Islam. So do Sikhs. 
um, Muslims themselves fear um, violence from the Hindu nationalists and so on. And when you actually take them to Auschwitz and see where the road that begins with these little steps actually ends, you know, all of us are transformed by that. And we could have gone out and done a lot of conflict resolution yeah. on the basis of that. And I think we have to do so right now. Absolutely. Okay, this is the final question. In practical terms, how is a moderate progressive rereading of our sacred texts going to outflank the regressive, repressive, and violent interpretations? Well, I'll tell you very simply. Uh, Wahhabi or Salafist Islam was 100 years ago an entirely minor marginal strand in Islam. And you can trace what actually happened when there was a hike in oil price in 1973, when suddenly certain Gulf states became rich beyond belief. They used that money to create an entire network of madrasas teaching this single hitherto minority strand of Islam throughout vast parts of the world. I mean, most obviously, they took, they created the whole infra educational infrastructure in Pakistan. They radicalized an entire generation because they thought it through and they said, okay, we have the resources, this is how you do it. You think we couldn't do likewise? Mm. And train a group of religious leaders for the next generation who will actually understand what coexistence and mutual respect is and why it's essential and why only through peaceful means will we ever achieve any of the ideals that we have for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren not yet born. Why don't we do it? It will cost a fraction of the price that has been wasted in wars that did not make any situation better and made several situations manifestly worse. Why? Because we're Westerners and we think that if you can't solve the problem by tomorrow or at least by the next general election, forget about it. Well, I think we should start thinking long term. I think we should start getting real. I think we should start saying what Jews have always said. You want to change the world? Educate a child. Mm. Let us educate the children of the future, not to hate the people with whom they must one day live. And let us begin by educating the educators. And believe you me, if it takes us 20 years and it takes us 50 years, I would rather endow our grandchildren with the prospect of a world at peace than the sheer impatience that allows the loudest voice to win. And let me simply end, because this has been heavy stuff. And uh, <laughs> you see, we, we, the truth is, you know, there are not many Jews, but we're not bad at problem solving. And so can I just end, because this is my favorite, because just when you think a problem is totally insoluble, somehow or other, you sit and you think and you work it out. I love this story. It's taken from 1947, when you probably know the relations between the British mandatory power in Palestine and the guys in the Haganah wasn't great. And Chaim gets himself arrested for gun running for the Haganah by the British and is imprisoned in the British military prison in Akko. He is there and his wife on the farm, on the Moshav, writes him a letter saying, Chaim, it's great for you to go and be a hero for the Jewish people. But meantime, I have, we have a farm to run. We have potatoes to plant. We have a field to plow. I can't do that on my own. How am I supposed to plant the potatoes? Chaim sits down and writes his wife the following letter. Dear Kenya, whatever you do, don't touch the ground. There are rifles buried underneath. <laughs> the letter is intercepted by the British military authorities. 
The next day, the entire farm is overrun by soldiers. They dig up every single inch of the ground. They do not find one single rifle. Disconsolate, they return to base the next morning. Chaim says, Kenya, now plant potatoes. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Recanati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.